sense that when I prepare each Sunday, that there is a great sense of inadequacy of what I bring to you, that I feel like there's just these times where I I have this direction I want to go with the text, and it does not do justice in any shape or form to the greatness and the vastness and the gloriousness of our God. And so this morning, I want you to open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 3. Under that context, under that pretense, we are coming uh, to an absolutely monumental passage here this morning in Luke chapter 3, because in just these two verses that we're going to be looking at, in verse 21 and 22, there is this incredible amount of rich theology and doctrine that we can glean from right here alone. And to be honest with you, I, ha- I had to cut it off. It's just like there was so much here that we could absolutely just spend weeks upon weeks just in this passage. And we've got a lot of questions that come to mind when we look at this. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke since the first of the year. But as we come to this text, we've got some questions that we ask. And we don't want to just, when you read the Bible, it's, it's difficult sometimes. We just kind of sometimes glean over things and go quickly and have a cursory reading of them. But we need to ask questions of the text. And as we look at this this morning, there were some that came to my mind, like, why did Jesus want or even need to get baptized? And why was he praying? And what is the Trinity? And why did the Holy Spirit descend like the form of a dove? And why did God need to speak and tell everyone that this is his son in whom he is well pleased? And does the Holy Spirit descend upon us when we're baptized? And so... You can kind of see all these number of questions that we could ask of this text, and like I said, we could spend weeks upon weeks trying to answer them, but we won't be able to. Uh, We're going to hit on a number of them, but my prayer for you is this, and and it is the same thing that I had while I was preparing it, and that is that you will come to know the intimacy of the Savior and understand the significance of the baptism of Jesus in a more profound way, and that in turn will drive you to gratitude and you'll be able to worship God in the fullness which he rightly deserves. Amen? So we're in Luke chapter 3, looking at 21 and 22 this morning. I invite you to stand with me, if you're able to, for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. And God's word says this, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying... Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of it, the gift of it, Lord. And as we see on the internet, all these videos of people getting the Bible for the first time in their own language. They are just full of joy. They weep. They are so thankful to you for it, God. Just help us to have that same gratitude for it. We squander our time. We don't spend time with you like we should. We don't read your word and desire to know you more, Lord. But this morning, help us to do that. Help us to have a passion to know you intimately like you know us intimately. We just pray all that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Well, over the last few weeks, like I said, since the beginning of chapter 3, really, we've had a chance to look into the mission and ministry of John the Baptist. And he's really sort of this enigma in a way by the way he lived. Matthew 3 tells us that he lived in the wilderness, right? He wore a garment of camel's hair, and it was wrapped with a leather belt. Furthermore, his food was of locust and wild honey, and he would have been the ultimate TV reality star, you know, even before, uh, and would have surpassed bizarre foods and what not to wear in the ratings business, right? But John lived a life that was solely dedicated to one purpose, and that one purpose was to prepare the people of God for the coming of God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? John 1.7 says that he came as a witness to testify to the light. And over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about baptism and how John was performing a baptism of repentance. And baptism wasn't, wouldn't have necessarily been a, a foreign concept to them uh, because the, the Jews are coming out to see, excuse me, coming out to see John in the wilderness because it was the last step that would have been performed on a Gentile who was converting to Judaism, right? If you remember those three things we talked about last week, first thing they would have had to have been done is to be circumcised. Secondly, they would have had to perform or bring an animal to the altar to be sacrificed to atone for their sin. And then finally, they would have had to have been immersed in water in the mikvah, where essentially it's a baptism pool, and it was symbolic that they had died to their Gentile ways and are living for Judaism. It was a long process. But John is immersing people in the Jordan River. And it was done to those Jews to demonstrate that the people had an inward change of heart. It was an external physical symbol to demonstrate an internal spiritual reality. And he was calling out the Jews because they were hanging on to the fact that they were the chosen people of God, right? They were Israel. They were hanging on to their family lineage. They were holding really on to secondary matters and weren't considering the primary matters. And the primary matter was that John the Baptist was confronting them with it, and he said that their sin was still in their hearts. So he called them to repent or turn away from their sin and turn towards God. And then finally last week, we saw how John was very bold in rebuking Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this wasn't Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in about, I think, 4 B.C., but this was his son. And uh, the sons got divided up the power over Israel. But this was Herod the Tetrarch, and he was a government leader over Galilee who had divorced his wife and then married his sister-in-law slash niece, Herodias, right? She was the daughter of his half-brother, Aristobulus, and he was the wife of another brother, Philip. John had told Herod that it wasn't lawful for him to have her as a wife, and obviously this didn't sit well with Herod, and more so it didn't sit well with Herodias. And as a result of the boldness with John the Baptist, Herod ends up throwing John into prison. And according to the perspective of Luke, this was the greatest crime that Herod had committed. He silenced the forerunner to the Messiah, the prophet of God. And as we mentioned last week, this was sort of an abrupt end in our text in the life of John in, in Luke's gospel here. In fact, we know by way of Matthew 4.12 
that Jesus didn't return to Galilee until John is thrown in prison. But for us, as we're going through Luke, that doesn't really happen until 4.14. So there's this abruptness in Luke's gospel to simply tell us John is thrown in prison. And as we concluded last week, there's really just a practical reason for that. And that was in order to tell us that there is one who is greater than John the Baptist. Oh boy, somebody's getting bonus points. There was someone that is more important that you need to know about. John's important. John's life is not inconsequential. But there is someone more important that you need to know about. It's reminiscent of John the Baptist's statement in John 3.30 when he says that he must increase and I must decrease. So Luke sets aside his normal chronological order for us here, and he does so to delineate or set a dividing line between the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus Christ. There has to be a break point, a clear dividing line. Luke's not wanting to overlap the ministry of our Lord with the ministry of John. So as a whole... This is one of the two things that this text does for us. First, it serves as a dividing line between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that our text here does for us as a whole, and so we're, we're kind of in this Google Earth approach here, right? We're just kind of looking at the big picture before we get in to look at the individual brushstroke. But the second thing it does for us, and more importantly, our text serves as the most significant, the most notable, and most compelling of all witnesses to Jesus Christ, and that is the witness of God the Father himself, right? We've had this line of witnesses come into the courtroom here. We've had Zacharias and Elizabeth. We've had Simeon. We've had Anna. We've had the shepherds. We've had the holy angels. And now here in our text today, we have the audible witness of the Father's voice that this is Jesus. This is his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. But of all the witnesses that have been brought forth, of all the people who have heard and seen and were amazed at Jesus Christ's birth, and all the people that were in the temple who are amazed at his answers and his questions, the most forceful and important witness that we have here is the witness of God the Father himself. And if that wasn't enough, if you're reading through the Bible, we've had all of the Old Testament before that, before getting to this point, that Jesus is the Messiah, even before anything that we've ever covered since the beginning of the year. And Luke's going to confirm that, or Jesus confirms that for us in Luke 24, 25, and 27. He says to him, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses, and that's typically a euphemism for the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or the five scrolls, right? Beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Excuse me. But our high point here, Our most notable testimony is right here in the Father himself. Now, we've got more to say about this later in detail, but I just want you to see this in kind of a big picture way. This is sort of the high point of witnesses that Luke has recorded for us. So in our text today, looking at verse 21, first of all, it says, Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. So let's stop right there for a second. 
First of all, it says that all the people were baptized. This does not mean that every single person that came out to John was baptized. All does not refer to every single person who heard the message of repentance and who listened to John's preaching and responded to his call and was baptized. How do we know this? Well, if we flip over and look at Luke chapter 7, I want you to flip over there with me. Luke chapter 7, and starting in verse 28. Luke uh, chapter 7, starting in 28, he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. There it is again, all the people. But look in verse 30. It says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So all the people right there were told that Pharisees and the lawyers were not baptized by John. But I want you to notice real quick there in verse 30 that it was not necessarily a rejection of John, but ultimately it's a rejection of God himself. And this is crucial for you and I to realize when we share the gospel with someone and when you tell them their spiritual condition before God and their need for him and they reject what you have to say, they may be rejecting you in a little bit in truth, They may be rejecting what you have to say, but you have to understand that ultimately, when you give them the truth from Scripture, they're rejecting God. But back in our text, let's flip over to Luke 3. It says that all the people were baptized. It doesn't mean that every single person was baptized. This is hyperbole for those of you who are uh, English geeks. And the crazy thing is, I'm I'm not a big English, English guy, all right? But a hyperbole is an exaggerated statement that's used to make a point. But what it shows is that there was a large number of people that responded, not the total number of people. A large portion out of the many. It's like say, uh, us saying that everybody's coming to Grace Fellowship Church, right? It's kind of a generalized statement. Certainly there's more people here than what we would have ever expected, but it doesn't mean that every single person is coming. But what this also does is that serves as a building block for the next part of the sentence in verse 21 there, in that Jesus was also baptized. Now, if we compare the account of Matthew and Mark, the first thing we notice here very quickly is the brevity, to say it mildly, of of Luke writing into the baptism of Jesus. Luke doesn't record for his most excellent Theophilus the interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And we've seen a number of passages from Luke with the brevity of words usually indicates a more priority or a higher priority in content. He's getting to something. He's being succinct in order to get to the good stuff. He's letting us nibble on the appetizer so that we can get to the main course. But we asked the question this morning, why did Jesus want or need to get baptized? In order for us to answer that question, we've got to look back at Matthew chapter 3. Flip back a couple books. Matthew chapter 3. Put your ribbon marker in Luke 3 and go to Matthew 3. And we're going to look at starting in verse 13. In Matthew 3 and verse 13, we have the account of the baptism of Jesus from his perspective. In verse 13, starting there, it says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. 
But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we see a lot of similarities here, don't we, between Matthew and Luke in the baptism of Jesus. But what we're going for is the why question. Why was he baptized? First of all, in verse 14, starting there, we see that John's a little confused, isn't he, about why in the world is Jesus Christ coming to John in order to get baptized, doesn't he? So much so that John says, wait a second, he's, he's got, trying to prevent it from happening. John's a little perplexed. And why is that? Well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, wasn't it? Remember, he's calling on the hard-hearted Jews who thought their family lineage as a Jew was of great value. And it was enough for their salvation. But John called on them to repent and turn away from their sin and their hard-heartedness. So you can imagine this line of people coming down the John into the water to confess sin and, and their sinfulness and demonstrate true repentance. And then suddenly, standing right there in front of him is the sinless Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. He wants to get baptized, right? But John tries to stop him. He says to him, I need to be baptized by you, right? But John definitely has the right perspective when it comes to Jesus, doesn't he? I mean, John doesn't even think he's worthy to untie the thong of his sandals, the lowliest of jobs here. And here comes Jesus standing in front of him wanting to be baptized. But our answer to why Jesus wants to be baptized is in verse 15 of Matthew 3 right there. It says, But Jesus answering said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, and then he permitted him. So the first thing that we can say is that we can absolutely say that Jesus did not come to get baptized in order to confess and repent of sin, right? If he had to repent of sin, if he would have had to confess, he would have ceased to be the sinless lamb of God, the spotless lamb, right? But scripture repeatedly tells us Jesus was out was without sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. But Jesus gives us the answer in that it is to fulfill righteousness. Now, theologians don't really necessarily, are they unified in understanding what that phrase means. But I want to give you three reasons why I think Jesus was baptized by John, and I want to give them to you in order of least importance to of greater importance. We can probably break them down even more so, maybe some indirect results and direct results. And first of all, the first thing that it did was confirmation. And I think this is really just an indirect cause to some degree because Jesus being baptized is a 
confirmation of the ministry and message of Jesus or John the Baptist. I don't think this was the primary reason for Jesus to get baptized, but essentially when all the people are baptized, then comes Jesus, the Son of God, and he does the same. Essentially, Jesus being baptized endorsed what John was saying and doing, that people needed to repent. People needed the righteousness from the inward part of their being. John wasn't calling on the people to do good deeds, but to have a transformation of heart. So Jesus being baptized confirms that message. And if you think about us getting baptized as believers, it's really comforting really to us knowing that Jesus, our Lord, he did it himself. He commanded us to do it. And as Mark Dever says, it is one of the easiest commandments of Jesus Christ that you can follow by getting a little wet, right? The second thing that Jesus' baptism does for us is inauguration. We have to remember that Jesus remained in relative obscurity for about 30 years, right? We haven't heard of anything about Jesus for 18 years since the time he was 12 in the temple. But this is the point that he begins his public ministry. He didn't walk around with a halo on his head like the velvet oil paintings on the west side of Columbus, right? He didn't do any miracles yet. He didn't wear a t-shirt that says, I'm the original homeboy, right? But we're going to see later in Luke 3 that this is just the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And though this is really the end and the pinnacle and the high point of the ministry of John the Baptist, this is only just the beginning of the, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, John the Baptist exiting stage right. Jesus comes and he's taking center stage. So we had confirmation, we had inauguration, and I think the most important and probably the most agreed upon by most theologians is what we would consider identification. So although Jesus was sinless, and was baptized as the Messiah, and although his baptism serves as an inauguration of his ministry, and although Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit upon his baptism, when he was baptized, he did so to express solidarity with sinners like you and I. So what do I mean by that? If you think about a union that's on strike, right? And they're marching around outside of a business and they make their signs and their banners and they get their barrel and they get that fire going. Everybody's got to have a barrel when they're on strike for some reason. And then here comes along this guy who's totally unrelated to them. And he comes and he grabs a bullhorn and he starts marching around with them. He picks up the picket sign and he starts marching and he's he's not related to the union in any sort of way. That guy is expressing solidarity, right? But there's a big difference for us when we're baptized and compared to Jesus. For none of us are sinless when we're baptized. None of us participate in baptism as an inauguration of our ministry. And we are sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment we're born again and before we're baptized. If that's not true, if that last fact isn't true, then that thief on the cross has absolutely no hope. But Jesus stoops down into baptism to express his solidarity and his identification with sinners. But when we go to undergo baptism, we're not so much stooping down, but we are rising up with all the other redeemed in Christ Jesus. But in being baptized, he is identifying with sinners. He is fulfilling all righteousness because his entire life is going to be that of sinless perfection. 
Well, think about it. He had to live his entire life perfectly so that he could identify with us, yet be without sin so that at the appointed time, God's servant would be crucified when God had purposed and predestined to occur. You think about that remarkable fact. If it was just simply necessary for Jesus to take on human flesh and just just be the Lamb of God and and just to be crushed for our iniquities, to to satisfy God's requirement for a sacrifice, think about this. He could have easily been killed when Herod told the people to go kill all the children two years and under in Bethlehem and slaughter them. But that wasn't God's plan. Jesus had to live a perfect life. He had to demonstrate that he was perfectly righteous before God. And so when he died on the cross, essentially, God treated Jesus as if he had lived a sinner's life. And then he turns around and he takes that righteousness of Christ and he imputates it to us as if we have lived his life. It is the greatest exchange that has ever occurred in the history of mankind. The righteousness of Christ is given to those who believe in his name. 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. We could spend weeks on this, but we're going to move along. So there's a couple more things that Luke tells us about the baptism of Jesus. And we see that back in Luke 3.21. If you're not there, turn back there, where it says, while he was praying, heaven was open. First of all, Luke is the only one who records for us that Jesus was praying at the time of his baptism. And this is really a Lucan emphasis for us. Jesus was praying in Luke 6.12 when the choosing of the twelve happened. He was praying at Luke 9.18 when Peter's confession was of him being the Christ. He was praying at Luke 9.29 at the transfiguration. He's praying at at the giving of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11.1 as he faced the cross before raising Lazarus from the dead at the Last Supper and so on and so on and so on. Jesus was in constant, unbroken communion with the Father. And he stands, as he stands there in supplication with the Father, there's something incredible, something remarkable that happens. The heavens are opened. Now, you can be assured that when the heavens are open, there's going to be something dramatic that occurs. Ezekiel 1, he sees the heavens open and he sees visions of God. Stephen, when he was about to be stoned to death in Acts 7.55... The glory of God shone about him like an angel, and he sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. John, he sees the heavens opened in Revelation 19.11, and he sees the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this time, the remarkable thing that happens is in verse 22 for us. It says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So, if you ever wanted to demonstrate to somebody the Trinity in Scripture, this is probably the greatest text in the entire Bible. 
I personally like Romans 8. I think it starts in verse 9. I like that as well. But this is really just blows the water out of the heresy we've talked about before called modalism, right? That God manifests himself in different modes at different times. Sometimes he's the Father. Sometimes he's the Son. Sometimes he's the Holy Spirit, right? He puts on masks, if you will. In the early church, another form of this was called Sabellianism. And it was a heresy that was dealt with. But here you have together all three pictured, and here is the key word in this text, that they are pictured simultaneously, right? Jesus, the Son, is getting baptized. The Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. And the Father is speaking, confirming the identity of the Son. This is the beauty of the Trinity. But it says that the Holy Spirit here is descending in bodily form like a dove. Matthew's account adds that he was the Spirit of God was descending as a dove and like lightning. John's account says that he had seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remained on him. But we have to be careful that we don't try to read too much into the theological significance that the Holy Spirit came and rested upon Jesus like a dove. I remember our kids' cartoons sometimes. They had a literal dove come out of heaven and land on Jesus' shoulder, and they just kind of like looked at each other, you know. It's like, hey, Holy Spirit, you know. we got to be careful not to do that. But what is probably best for, understand, for us to understand is that the Holy Spirit came down in such a graceful way, in such an incredible brightness, that he was visible for others to see. But this is exactly what John, or God had told John would be the sign of the Messiah. In John 1.33, he says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He didn't tell him to watch for a bird. He just totally told him to watch for the spirit who would descend and remain. And that will confirm to you, John, that this is the Messiah. How do you see the Holy Spirit? Well, God allowed it to be seen by John in the form of a dove. But the high point grammatically of this passage is, in fact, the Father's testimony, the very last words. And you can see that especially when you compare the accounts of Matthew and Mark to Luke. Luke really just cruises through rather rapidly in our text to get to the fact that the Father is pleased with the Son, right? You look at it, 21 and 22, Jesus is baptized. He was praying, heaven was open, the Holy Spirit descended, and then boom, God spoke, right? He's moving along quickly. But essentially, this is a confirmation or a verification, if you will, that Jesus Christ is whom the Father takes great pleasure. And this isn't a new status for Jesus. This isn't some sort of adoption taking place here. He wasn't merely a human whom, on whom God said, Aha, that's the guy I want right there. He wasn't some Middle Eastern guru who possessed a lot of wisdom, right? The angel told Mary in Luke 1.32 that he would be the son of the Most High. Jesus, remember back, he knew who his father was back in the temple, back in Luke 2.49. I had to be in my father's house so this wasn't a new status bestowed upon jesus but this was in fact god incarnate 
Colossians 2.9 tells us that for in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh. This is why he could calm the seas, walk on water, multiply the wine with the best wine that there ever has been, multiply the fish and the bread to feed thousands, and call forth the dead back to life, and even say that before Abraham was, I am. But why would the Father take great delight in the Son? I asked this question before of some friends, and I got some varying answers. But I asked this question, what is God's greatest delight? What's God's greatest delight? Now you think about that for a second. If someone said, what is God's greatest delight? What would you answer them? Some answered creation, right? Because after God created it, he saw it and he said it was good. Some answered that God's greatest delight is man, since he made man and created him in his image. Some uh, offered that God's greatest delight is in the salvation of a sinner, since the angels rejoice, right? All good things. But as a believer, think about the greatest thing you possess. Think about the only thing that you have that has eternal value. Think about the only thing that's going to matter when you die. Think about the only thing that's going to be able to keep you and sustain you and nourish you and comfort you. Now, hopefully as a Christian, you are sitting there and you are concurring with Paul and you can't even compare any earthly thing to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. He says in Philippians 3.8, More than that, I count all things to be loss in value, in view rather, of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, garbage, so that I may gain Christ. Jonathan Edwards once said this, he said, the infinite happiness of the Father consists in the enjoyment of his Son. John Piper is helpful here as well. He says that, so when we say that God loves the Son, we're not talking about a love that is self-denying, sacrificial, and merciful. We're talking about a love of delight and pleasure. God is not stooping down to pity the undeserving when he loves his son. That's how God loves us. It's not how he loves his son. He is well pleased with his son. His soul delights in his son. When he looks on his son, he enjoys and admires and cherishes and prizes and relish what he sees in his son. The first great pleasure of God is his pleasure in his son. So we could really say, if we put this in the context of the Trinitarian God, we could say that God's greatest delight is in himself. Since the Son is equal with God, eternally existent with God, the exact representation in bodily form, the image of God, we could say that God's greatest delight is himself. When God created the world... It wasn't because he needed anything. 
He wasn't lonely. When he made man, it wasn't because he had a, a sense of loneliness or longing. There was no deficient in his character or his being. He is perfect in his radiance and glory. He is eternally sufficient in and of himself. Think about it. Think about this. What could God dwell on that would be more enjoyable? What could God possibly delight in that would be more perfect In the great expanse of this universe that we live in, I ask you this. What is more glorious? What is more perfect? What is more holy? What is more righteous and more wise and more beautiful than God himself? But even though God delights in his son, the son in whom he is well pleased, and even though God is and has never been in need of anything, we call this doctrine the aseity of God, right? The remarkable thing is this, that God created you, that God rescued you, that God loved you first so you could love him. And even though you were dead in your transgressions and sin, He made you alive together with Christ and raised us up with him in the heavenly places. And God has adopted you so that if you delight in his son, that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are now a co-heir with Christ and have an internal inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is kept in heaven for you. The same God that made the heavens and the earth that knows your thoughts and your words even before you say them, even before they're on your tongue and he's intimately acquainted with all your ways, is the same God who made you and rescued you. So this morning, in light of this fact that God has rescued us, he has redeemed us and he has given us an inheritance and he has made us co-heirs with Christ, in light of the fact that God has transferred us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, this morning, can you as well say that you are well pleased in the son? Can you say with Paul that everything that you possess, your status at work, the number of children you've born, your ministry status, your possessions, can you say that they are all rubbish, that's all trash, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ? Do you delight in knowing God? Is your greatest pleasure contemplating and knowing and striving and abiding in Christ? When you get up in the morning, mom and and dads, do your children see you click on the TV first? Do your kids see you get get on Facebook first? Do they see you get on and start reading the news first more than they see you spending time in God's word? Do you delight in the sun? If not, what can you do? What's the answer? You can pray. You can ask God to give you a delight for his word. You can ask God to give you a passion for knowing Christ and making him known. And you can ask him for help for you to delight in the Son. Matthew 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. 
Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Do you delight in the Son this morning? Is he your joy? You're not here at church to come as a mere duty to check it off for the week. But are you here because you want to delight in the Son and in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, if we all revealed our hearts and laid them open so that everyone could see, every one of us in this room would be exposed to the fact that we do not delight in you as we ought to. We do not seek you, and we do not abide in you day by day, moment by moment. We depend more upon ourselves. We depend more upon our money and our possessions to bring us happiness. We depend upon uh, things of this world, Lord, that are going to burn up and have no eternal value. But Lord, this morning, help all of us this morning to delight in knowing your Son. Help us to seek our greatest pleasures in knowing Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your tender mercies. And we thank you that you are a God who is unchanging and steadfast, a bulwark never failing. Lord, lift us up so that we can magnify the name of Jesus and that we might be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.